as Tristan said, we're going to wrap up the series of the Beatitudes. Um, you'll find those, of course, in Matthew 5. And we're going to read a portion just to remind ourselves the context of what Jesus was saying and also read, of course, the Beatitudes. So we'll start to read at, uh, Matthew 4 and verse... Um, Matthew 4 and verse 23. It's great to see you all here this morning, and it's great to see visitors. Welcome to our service this morning. It's a pleasure to see you and to have your fellowship with us. Matthew 4, 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up unto a mountain. When he was, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's just pray before we come around this message. Father, we thank you for your word. It truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. May we not only hear your word this morning, but may we store it in our hearts and make it a part of our daily lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So for the last few weeks, we've been looking at what is called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, of course, are just a small part of the sermon which Jesus pre preached, uh, what we generally call the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with verse 3, as we just saw, but it ends uh, in Matthew 7 and verse 27. And the people weren't used to this kind of preaching they weren't used to the, 
the words that Jesus uttered. And uh, Matthew gives an appraisal of what Jesus said in verses 7, 28, and 29. And this is what he said. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What a, a recommendation for somebody who they just heard, somebody who wasn't connected with, with Judaism in, in, in the teaching kind of way, and yet they heard from his lips something that was amazing. It would have been great to sit on that hillside and listen to the words of Jesus, wouldn't it? For me, this has been a great series with some excellent teaching. We, we've heard that it's not something just to pluck an item out of and say, oh yeah, I might be good at that, uh, usually because it's your natural ability, your natural attribute, but this is something which we need to embrace as a whole. Uh, we, we got used to embracing the Ten Commandments as a whole. We don't just pick one out and say, oh, I'll not be a murderer this week. Um, and Jesus, of course, confirmed that. He said that he, he, in uh, Matthew 5 and verses... Um, 7 to, I think, 17, it said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will not by no means pass from the law until it's all been fulfilled. And so just as we're to embrace all the commandments, then we have to embrace all this portion of Scripture in this teaching of the Beatitudes. I don't see them as, uh, uh, we've been told that they're kind of a ladder, one adds to the other. And that's the way that I see them. I see them as building blocks, which when put together form the principles of the kingdom of God, which of course is what Jesus was was talking all about. We read in Matthew 4 and verse 23, that he'd already been around the synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. And then, of course, he mentions the kingdom of God twice in these Beatitudes that we've been looking about. And so, there we have a a little bit of the background of the uh, series that we've been doing. To continue on this kind of introduction to what we've been looking at, I don't see these as a promise of blessings per se, but I see them, as I mentioned before, as principles of the Word of God. For instance, we don't get a reward for humility, for mourning, for meekness, for righteousness, etc., but we see them as principles. A principle is something that's going to happen every time. The principle of gravity is that if you throw something into the air, then it comes down. You've just got to be careful that you're not stood underneath it when it does. And so it always happens. It's a certainty. And we should look at these um, Beatitudes with the same certainty that if we keep these, then the blessings will be there for us, that God is going to honor his word. It's not something that all we'll do because God is going to bless us. It's something that we do because we, we know that that is going to extend, extend the kingdom uh, as we read a little lower, lower down, as salt and light is dis- distributed into the world. 
What does this word blessed mean? Well, we've seen it before. It means happy. Um, the, the Greek word, it suggests that uh, the word is an adjective suggesting happy, supremely blessed, a condition in which congratulations are in order. It's a grace word that expresses the special joys and satisfaction granted the person who experiences salvation. And so it's a great word. God didn't have to bless us. He could have just given us instructions and said, get on with it, that's what I require. But it's a grace word, it's a blessing. You'll remember that a little while ago, um, well, perhaps it's a few, 20 years or so ago, there was an Archbishop Macarius, and he was the head of the Greek Orthodox Church. And so, um, if you knew him, then you knew a little Greek. Um, he's a, whether he was happy, I don't know. Whether he was blessed, I don't know. But he was called, certainly, after this uh, particular uh, verse, this Greek word, makarios. So blessing is a, a, a principle of the kingdom of God. And then we looked a little bit at, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now don't look at as though it's just the poor in spirit that receive the kingdom of heaven or those who are persecuted for righteousness. I see those as kind of parentheses. Everything between them uh, is for the kingdom's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, first, uh, a person just picking up his Bible and reading that might think that, oh, you know, this is an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Well, of course, Tristan pointed out three weeks ago that there's only one way into the kingdom of heaven, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ, believing on him. And that's the only way that you get to the kingdom of heaven. Um, could it be that as we mature as citizens of the kingdom, then that's a sign that we've made it, that we've got there, and that we're keeping these particular... I don't think so. I don't think so at all. You see, when Jesus said that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he was talking about something a little bit differently. If you turn to Matthew 25 and verse 34, this is what Jesus said. Then the king will say to those on his left-hand side, the, the, the sheep, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the sheep, the believers, are going to inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. Paul picks up this theme, doesn't he? In Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, where he says, The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if we indeed suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. God is king. He always will be. But Jesus tells us there in Matthew 25 that God has been preparing a kingdom for us from the foundation of the world. What forethought was put into this kingdom of God? And so these particular beatitudes are for, are for believers. You will see them in the world, of course you will. But generally speaking, they're for believers. 
Jesus confirmed that when he said his disciples came to him and he spoke to them primarily, although, of course, there were other people present at the time. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so that confirms to me particularly that this is a list of characteristics which marks out the believer. Our attitude to these should be very, very positive indeed because this is what is going to mark us out as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Beatitudes call for a response to any given situation. They call for action. Action and not reaction. Do I get it right all the time? Do you get it right all the time? Well, I certainly don't. I'm looking for the day where I don't have to ask for forgiveness quite so much. But 1 John 1 John 1 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friends, if we slip up, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ. We certainly need to allow the Spirit of God to work on these characteristics mentioned here, these attributes, and place them into our lives to a far greater scale than hitherto. So that's by way of introduction. Now let's have a look at these three verses. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 10 kinds of sets out uh, the, the beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted. But note it's for righteousness' sake. If you're persecuted because you've done something wrong, because you upset your neighbor or, or anybody else, then you can't expect any blessing or any help from God in that instance. It, that, that's, not, that's not the principle. That's not going to happen. It may do. They may have grace and they may bless you. But it's for the kings, for, the, for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 12, he repeats it. If any evil is done against you falsely for my sake, then uh, great is your reward in heaven. So, just thought it was worth pointing out. We can't just do what we want and expect God to bless our endeavors. Um, it's, we, we need to be careful uh, when we're expecting God to, to bless us for that. And Jesus points out in verse 11 and 12 that persecution is not always physical, but can also be ver- verbal. It can be verbal abuse, lies. Uh, but it's still in the context of, for Jesus' sake. In this country, we don't see much physical persecution for following Jesus. We do get the ridicule, we get the taunts, we get the jeers, we get the laughter, we get the lies, etc. But generally, we have it cozy, perhaps too cozy. Do you know where the greatest Uh, growth of the churches in the world today. Anybody? Well, I'll tell you, it's in Iran. Surprising, isn't it? Iran is the fastest growing church in the world in spite of the persecution 
that they receive. Gavin Calver, president of Evangel Evangel Evangelical Alliance, told us at Keswick that throughout the world today, there are 200 million evangelical Christians in 35 countries that are suffering persecution. That's a lot of people. And yet, the church growth throughout the world has never been greater. It seems that persecution and growth go together. Now, I'm not advocating that we pray for persecution so that we might experience a move of God in this country. Uh, nobody would. Because God has blessed on many occasions without the persecution. In fact, as Jesus spoke, he was experiencing revival there on the shores of Galilee, wasn't he? He was experiencing a great time of blessing. Multitudes, it says, followed him. And many were healed. However, Jesus knew what lay ahead. And we, of course, don't know what lies ahead. We've experienced many years of blessing in this country. But Jesus is obviously preparing his followers for the persecution which was to follow, of which, of course, he was aware of. He encouraged them in two ways. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You see, we might not see the rewards down here, but there's certainly going to be rewards in heaven. And so if we're suffering abuse and persecution for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of God, then you can be sure that even if things don't get better here, there's a reward awaiting you in glory. Sometimes the promised blessing only comes when we get to heaven. But keep rejoicing, it's coming. And then he encourages them by saying, look, you can do it. Other people have done it. The prophets who were persecuted before you, they came through. They've all got to glory. And of course, there were a lot of them. Quite a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted. I noted just a few in, in, in a couple of seconds. Elijah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, David, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and of course, many, many others that you could find in the Old Testament. All people who were persecuted for the sake of their, of their Lord. And so that's to name just a few. I wonder if John the Baptist, Peter, Stephen, etc. remembered these words as they suffered in the days to come. I wonder how I would react if this sort of persecution were to come on us in this country. Would I act as those who have gone before? Would I use them as an example? Or would I react if the same were to come to me? It's interesting to note that the one who would suffer most, resist the least, would accomplish the most. He did not use himself as an example. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.10. Let me just read what he said in Philippians 3.10. He said, That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This was a verse given to Dr. Helen Rosevere. She became a Christian shortly after leaving Cambridge, uh, and she became a medical doctor. 
a, a well-known evangelist at the time and Bible teacher, Dr. Graham Scroggy, met her shortly after, and he spoke with her. And he, he quoted this verse to her. And he said, tonight, the first part of this verse has become a reality for you. But I trust that as time passes, you will have enough faith to fulfill the second part. Helen joined the WEC uh, Missionary Society and went to the northeast of the Congo and established a mission school there and a hospital complete with maternity wards as the infant death rate was colossal at the time. Years later, Helen was taken by the rebels, abused by them, and they put her and many of her colleagues in a makeshift prison with little or no food. As Helen lay on on the dirt floor, she remembered the verse which was given to her on her salvation, that that we may know the fellowship of his sufferings. That sustained her until help arrived. It was later discovered that the date had been set for her, for her and her colleagues' execution. But the government forces arrived ten days prior to the date set for their demise. After nine months furloughing back in England, she went back to the same place and supervised the building of a new hospital. She was spared, but her friend Bill McChesney was killed at Wamba during the Simber Rebellion. I don't suppose, friends, that we're ever going to come to this. But there are times when I wonder what our reaction would be. She went back to the place that abused her and set up a new mission station. She lived to well into her 90s and died just four years ago. A great lady of God. None of us know how we would react to such brutality should it arise. I just pray that God would give us enough strength to stand firm and not deny him. Now, I don't believe that many of us are going to ever going to experience anything of that nature. So how do we relate to Philippians 3.19? Well, the first bit is fairly straightforward, isn't it? That we may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I would say that most of us this morning, if not all of us, know him and know the power of his resurrection, his spirit at work within us. But Paul writes in various places about his life and power in us. Romans 8, 10, 11, 2 Corinthians 4, 10, 11, all great verses regarding knowing him. But how about sharing his suffering? You see, we might never share his suffering in such ways by this kind of way, uh, by persecution. But could I suggest this morning that sharing in his suffering, as far as we're concerned, is dying to the self-centered life that is so natural to us and being willing to accept difficulties and hardships that God's love may go out to all people that we meet and that it might result in salvation and discipleship in them. Helen Rosevear did just that. She could have been a doctor in a newly formed National Health Society, but she rather sacrificed an ambition and ended up being persecuted for the sake of her Lord. But then, isn't dying to self also a sacrifice? See, sacrifice and persecution often go hand in hand. 
and often involve loved ones. We haven't looked at length at the obvious illustration of Jesus' persecution. So at this point, let's just look at that for a short while. Look at Christ's example in respect of sacrifice, persecution, and the loved ones, the onlookers around at that crucifixion scene. We're all well aware of Jesus' reaction to persecution. He said nothing. His sacrifice and death were were prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What a saviour. How it must have affected those that stood on that hillside at Calvary. We may not be the ones persecuted, but we may have to watch loved ones that are. And that can be just as harrowing, just as heartbreaking. In John 19, verse 25, Mary, his mother, was there. Her sister was with her. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene, and, of course, John, the beloved disciple. There were others who were standing and watching a little short way off. Mary, the one who had given birth and cared for him, the one who'd loved him for 33 years, had followed his every move, was now watching him dying on that cross. Our heart must have been breaking as she stood there before her Savior. Then there was his father, God himself, who had been with him not for 33 years, but for eternity. And he watched as Jesus died. I understand that Stalin, who was one of the world's cruelest men, he loved to sign death warrants of the dissidents in Russia. If there was a father and a son that he wanted to kill, he would tell his executioners to kill the son first and make the father watch because he knew how to inflict the greatest pain possible on those people. And as Jesus suffered there on that cross, it wasn't a dissident Russian activist. It was the Son of God. And God was looking on how God must have suffered as well as Jesus. Was that why Jesus turned his face, why why he turned his face away? Why why, why God turned his face away and Jesus cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? I know that God knew of the pain that Jesus was suffering He got Isaiah to write about it 700 years before. But I'm sure he couldn't bear to watch it. I know that some people say he turned away because of the sin that Jesus bore. It's possible. But you know, God had been looking at sin from from before creation. And it hadn't ever faced him before. However, there were other onlookers besides Mary and God. There was the dying thief who saw something in Jesus that he'd never seen before. And he cried out, let me be in paradise with you. Save me. 
And Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise. Left it a bit late, didn't he? Then there was the centurion. And as the thunders echoed around the place, he was heard to say, surely this was the Son of God. And then, of course, there's you and me. As we've gazed on Calvary and seen the, the suffering, the persecution that was there, and the sacrifice, then we've been blessed as well. You see, persecution doesn't just bring pain to those that endure it. It brings relief and delight and salvation to those that are on. That's the whole purpose of these blessings, that it might be salt and light to other people. Through sacrifice and persecution has come life. That's another principle of the kingdom, isn't it? That through death, life comes. Paul exhorts us to be like Jesus. Through Philippians, you'll know the verses well. Let this mind, or let this attitude, be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. It's all about sacrifice and, pers- and, uh, and persecution. And Paul, and Paul writes to the Philippians and said, let this mind, let this attitude be in you as well. See, persecution isn't for enjoyment. It's to be endured as lasting results come from it. And not only in the form of a great reward in heaven, but lasting results in the form of salvation for others. As we close, let me read you a few verses from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 12. I'm reading these from the Living Bible. But this precious treasure, this light and power that now shine within us is held in perishable containers, that is, in our weak bodies, so everyone can see that our glorious power is from God and not our own. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed and broken. We are perplexed, but we don't give up and quit. We are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get up again and keep going. Through suffering, these bodies of ours constantly share in the death of Christ, so that life, so that the life of Jesus might be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be obvious in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death but it has resulted in eternal life for others. Tremendous verses summing up what this is saying. Doesn't it really stand out uh, what Paul is saying? You might have thought that he'd read Matthew's verses. And yet, friends, remember, 
It's the same author. The same one that put the spirit into Matthew to pen these words, put the inspiration into Paul as well. Anything that happens to us brings glory for him if we don't object and react to it. It's all about being salt and light. We're called to be a light in a dark world and called to flavor those putrid moments, those putrid scenes that happen all around us. Let's be salt and light in this world. Let's take these beatitudes. Let these be the attitude of our own heart so that we might be an encouragement to others around about us. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to be that salt and light in a world which is desperately short of it. We pray that you will help us. May our light so shine before men that they may see you in us and so glorify you also. Amen.